Genesis chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and we will conclude this chapter finally. We've been in this chapter for a while, but it is a, uh, I've told you before, my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. And so I knew it was going to take a while to get through it. If you'll turn to Romans 8, and I was reading and doing some research, and I'd never heard this story before, and I thought this would be a good story to start this message today. And it's about Martin Luther, the Reformer. And many of you are familiar with Luther. He lived in the 1500s. He was a, a German uh, monk or teacher, professor of theology. And, but he was known, as many great Christians have been known over the years, to go through bouts of depression. And on one occasion, uh, Luther was deeply discouraged, deeply down. I mean, the, the Roman Catholics, that he, is, he rejected their teachings. They were after him. Some of the authorities were after him. He was just tired and worn, and he also was dealing with kidney stones at this time. Just a lot of things going on in his life. And so he was kind of, like some of us do, moping around a little bit, feeling sorry for himself. And so his wife, her name was Katie, his wife took a black cloth and tied it on the front door, which in their custom, that was a mourning thing. You would do that when someone passed away. And so she put this black cloth on the front door, and she even put on a black dress. And so Luther comes home that day, and he walks in, and he's like, no. He's like, I can't take any more. Go ahead and give me the bad news. Who died? And she looks at him, and she says, God died. And he's like, what are you talking about? That's blasphemy. God cannot die. God, and she said, the way you're living, you're living as if God is dead. The story goes that Luther went to his desk, immediately sat down because of this rebuke from his wife. And he wrote in Latin the words, he lives. And he reminded himself that even when things are dark, Jesus lives. And as we sang a moment ago, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. And this text in Romans 8, if you are here this morning and you find yourself in a moment of despair, this text is so helpful. But even if you're feeling great today, and I hope you are, we all know at some point, time or another, we're going to go through despair. We're going to go through challenges. And I know no better place to turn than Romans chapter 8. Last week, we, we looked at 28 through 30, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to that if you were not able to. But we really, I'll summarize it like this. We said that God loved his people before the foundation of the world. He ordained them. He predestined them. He called them. He justified them. He took away his people's eternal condemnation and gave them eternal life. He gave them the Holy Spirit, and God will one day glorify them. And in the meantime, God is working all things together for their good, for our good. But we said this, and I want to make sure I I remind you of this. These beautiful promises of Romans chapter 8 are not for everyone. Does the Bible say that God works all things together for good of everyone? That's not what it says. Two things, and I want to ask you these questions before we dive into today's text. Number one, do you love God? Simple question, right? And any of us can say, yeah, I love God, but I mean, do you truly love Him? And none of us love Him perfectly because we're sinners, but it's like any other relationship, right? The people we love the most, your spouse, your children, your parents, your best friends, 
sometimes you can still not feel like you, you like them at times, right? But deep down, you love them. And so you may not always have that perfect relationship with God because we're sinners, but do you love him? Jesus said we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the greatest commandment. So do you love him? Do you treasure him? That's what I think that really means. Do you treasure God above everything else? The people that God works all things together for their good are the people who truly love and treasure him. The second part of verse 28 is they've been called according to his purpose. Have you been called? I don't mean have you heard a preacher or have you walked an aisle or said a prayer, but has God made an effectual call in your heart, calling you from darkness into his marvelous light? Has God removed the blinders from your eyes or opened your deaf ears or taken away your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh? Do you love him? And have you been called according to his purpose? If so, these promises this morning are for you. And if not, this morning you need to give your life to Jesus and trust in him. If you found Romans 8, verse 31, say word. word. Listen to this. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely, graciously give us all things? Who shall lay any charge against God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us today, help me to preach, help us all to hear your word clearly. I pray that you would give your people confidence and security and assurance and hope. And I have no doubt that there are some of us in here today who need, who desperately need to hear these things today. But I know these are things we all will need at some point in the future. And so, Father, reveal your word to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, if you guys remember, when we started this study through Romans, those first few chapters were kind of negative, or in the sense of it was about sinners. You know, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And even before that verse, there's all about how depraved the world is, how sinful the world is. And so, if you just read the first three chapters, or first two and a half chapters of Romans, it could be kind of like, where's the good news? 
But as we continue to study through chapter 3 and 4 and on, we saw good news. We saw God, uh, Paul, God through Paul, is that right? Yeah. Reveal this salvation by faith, justification by faith. And he continues to build. And to me, chapter 8 is this climax, this mountaintop of teaching. Because as I read chapters 4, 5, and 6, it's hard to read that and think God is against me. It's hard to read chapters 4, 5, and 6 and think, okay, I'm a sinner. Chapters 1 through 3, chapters 4, 5, 6, God justifies me by faith. But it's almost like Paul is thinking about his, those Romans he's writing to. It's almost like he's thinking, do you still doubt that God is for you? Do you not understand how much God loves you and how much God cares about you and how deep and wide and great the love of, of God is for you? It's, it's almost like that's happened. And so then it's almost like that's what spurred him to write chapter 8 because look at chapter 8, verse 1 there in your Bible. How does it start? There is no condemnation, Right? He tells them, in the, to begin this chapter, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you still think you're, you're in Christ, but yet you think you're condemned, no, there's no condemnation. And so he builds up through this chapter, and again, as we saw last week, God loves us from eternity past, he loves us for eternity future, and of course, he loves us now. And so, our text today, again, just puts the finishing touches on this thing that, hey, if you know Jesus, you are secure, you are you can be confident that he holds on to you. Verse 31. This verse has been many believers' very favorite verse. I read of many, like Luther, uh, like Calvin. Um, other believers have quoted Romans 8.31 or maybe even put it on a tombstone. It's been a very famous verse. It's a foundational verse. But what it is, is a, it's, a, it's an if-then statement, right? A conditional statement. If this, then this. If this, then this. It's kind of like this morning, um, you know, if the sermon is too long, then I'm going to fall asleep. That's for some of y'all. Um, but if this is true, then this must be true. And of course we know it. If God be for us. Now we know right off the bat, if we're believers in Christ, you can take that word if out, right? Because he is for us. He's for his people. We saw that last week. Uh, and I, I was studying this word for us, by the way. If God be for us, it means he's on our behalf. If God be on our behalf, who can be against us? We know Jesus died on our behalf, right? But it doesn't stop there. God is always on behalf of his people. Always looking out for us, one way or another. If God is on our behalf, then who can be against us? I told you this last week, and we know this to be true. Are there things in this life that are against us? Every day. I gave you five S's last week that are against us. Satan, is he against us? Sin, is it against us? Sometimes sickness is against us. Sometimes society is against us. And sometimes self. Sometimes we hurt our own selves. We're against ourselves. And all those things can be against us, but what this verse means is that ultimately none of those things can succeed in defeating us. They can try, and they will, but they cannot defeat us. Even if we get sick, and that sickness takes our very life, ultimately 
in Christ, we still have victory, don't we? Because we'll be going to be with Christ. If God be for us, who can be against us? And then he goes on in verse 32 and explains it even deeper, I think. He that spared not his own son. He that spared not his own son. Many people read this verse, this part of the verse, and it reminds them of an Old Testament story of someone who was about to sacrifice his son. You know who I'm thinking about? Abraham and Isaac. Remember the story? God told Abraham, God tested Abraham's faith. Go out there and sacrifice your son. And Abraham goes. You know the story at the last moment. God provides a substitute for Isaac. So Abraham's, so Isaac was spared, wasn't he? He was spared that, that thing, that death. Did God spare his own son? He spared Abraham's son, but did he spare his own son? He did not. He spared not his own son. This is a big deal. We shouldn't gloss over that phrase. How many of you would sacrifice your child for someone else? I would say none of us, right? How many of us would truly do that? But we kind of gloss over the fact that God gave his only begotten son, but do you love your child more than God loved his son? We don't. I don't believe we do. God, the Father, the Son, the Spirit have this Trinitarian love that we can't even understand. God loved his son. Ultimately, he didn't want to see his son suffer or die, but it had to be done so that we can be saved. Another thing about the, this phrase that I think is important is the, the promise works from the greater to the less or the harder to the easier. So if God is willing to give his own son, which is a hard thing to do, of course, nothing's hard for God. He can do anything. But in our eyes, that's a difficult thing to do. Then surely he can do the easier thing, which is to freely or graciously give us all we need. Does that make sense? God can do the greater thing, so of course he can do the, the lesser thing. So when you doubt what God has done in your life or what God can do, you need to remember, wait, he spared not his son for me. Surely he can help me you know, pay, pay my mortgage next month or work on this relationship issue I'm having or fix this thing at work or overcome this battle I'm going through. If God was willing to spare his own son, or not to spare his own son, to give his own son for my eternal life, surely that God will help me in my earthly life. These are very deep, but also very practical teachings. God can work anything out in your life if it's according to his will, and he will do that. Why would we doubt God for our earthly needs knowing he's provided for our eternal needs. One day, I read this from a guy named J.I. Packer, who wrote a lot of good books. I love what Packer said. He said, one day we will realize that nothing, literally nothing, which could have been given to increase our happiness, has been denied us by God. And nothing, literally nothing, that could have reduced our happiness has been left with us. He said, I like how he said that, we won't see that now, but one day we'll realize it, that God was always working on behalf of his people. Verse 33 and 34. 
these verses speak very clearly to what we've read in Romans because a lot of the middle section of this book was about being justified or made righteous or declared innocent in God's eyes. And so the question here is, who can condemn God's chosen people? Who will lay a charge against God's elect? Who can hurt them? Who can ultimately damage them? And the answer, of course, is no one can. Because if anyone could lay a charge against God's elect, if anyone could condemn God's people, then that person or that thing would be stronger than God or greater than God. Is there anything out there stronger or greater than God? There's not. He is alone, isn't he? And he is holy. He's alone in greatness and strength and power. So if anyone could bring condemnation on us, they would be more than God. And he said here, it's God that justifies. It's God that makes us right. The next verse, verse 34, says Christ, here's the gospel, Christ died for us and he's risen again. We sang that earlier. And he's at the right hand of God making intercession for us. Acts 17.31 says, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. When I read these verses, I picture a court scene. We've seen these on the news or maybe on the TV show or something where someone goes into court, he's a defendant, and he's, he's declared not guilty. The jury finds him not guilty. But when he walks outside, there are people out there who think he's guilty. Y'all seen this? We've seen this before. They have signs. They're protesting. He's guilty. Throw him in jail. You know, boo. And they, 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 they're throwing stuff at him. They don't like the guy. Guilty. But guess what? He's not guilty. The jury said no. He's, he's innocent. He's declared innocent. And so he walks free. Here's, what, here's the application. It doesn't matter what Satan says. It doesn't matter what the world says. If God has set you free... You are free indeed. If God has justified you and forgiven your sins, it don't matter who tries to bring those sins back into your life. Do y'all have people like that? That's happened to me before. People try to throw old sin back in your life, and you're like, man, Jesus forgave that a long time ago, right? You don't have to let those type of people condemn you. Who is it that condemns? Who can bring a charge against you? It's God that justifies. Christ won our salvation and showed victory through that resurrection but then I love this part, and this has been something renewed to me recently as I've studied, that Jesus prays for us. Isn't that amazing? That Jesus, I think I said this a few weeks ago, but we think Jesus just is in heaven just hanging out. But the Bible says he's at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us, praying for us. I just picture kind of like the Job situation, like Satan going to accuse Job before God, I picture that about, about us a little bit. And Jesus is like, no, I'm, I'm their advocate. That's my child. I gave my life for them. Jesus, of course, much stronger than anything Satan could ever do. Robert Murray McShane was a, a missionary, and he said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Can you imagine that? Imagine if Jesus himself was standing next, in the next room praying for you. He said, if I could hear that, I would not fear a million enemies. Then he said this, yet distance makes no difference 
because Jesus is praying for me even now. Is there anyone here to condemn us? No. Christ has set us free. I say that to you to remind you. It doesn't matter what anybody says about you when it comes to these types of things because you have a Savior who is at the right hand of the Father praying for you even now. Let's move to the last section, 35 through 39. I love all these verses. They could be whole other sermons. These questions, I think, I think one thing that stands out in Romans 8 are the questions that he asks. And it reminded me of uh, something. I'm a New Orleans Saints fan. Is anybody else a Saints fan? I don't know. No, okay, great, thanks. But, but the Saints have this battle cry, who dat? You ever heard that before? Who dat? It's like a little song. And so Jesse and I went to a game a few years ago, and you're just walking down through the French Quarter or whatever in New Orleans, and people randomly start yelling out, who dat? You start yelling it out. And if they yell it out, you just yell it back at them. You know? And of course it means, who dat? Or who dat going to beat them Saints? Or who is, who is out there who's going to beat them Saints? <laughs> you know, that's the proper way to say it. Those saints. But you never answer it. Nobody ever goes, who dat? And they're like, the Cowboys, they're going to beat them. Nobody ever does that. Because when you say who dat, what you're saying is, nobody's going to beat them, right? Nobody's going to, that's, that's, the, that's the saying that we, we do uh, during football season. Which is coming up soon, by the way, who dat? But the reason I said that, these, he asked all these questions, who will condemn us? But he doesn't really answer it the whole time. Who will condemn us? Nobody will. Who will be against us? Verse 31. He doesn't answer it. We just know, right? No one can be against us. Who shall lay a charge against us? No one. Who, in this verse, 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What's the answer? No one. Is anyone stronger? Can anyone, is anyone greater? Is anyone more powerful than God who can separate us from the love that He has poured out? Can anyone restrict or restrain the love of God as He sees fit to pour it out? No. Is He all-powerful? Is He omnipotent? Is He sovereign? When He pours out His love, it cannot be stopped. Even in, a, in some sense, when you may not even want to receive it in some sense, but God can still show you grace and love in this, in this world. You ever had a child that you, or a grandchild or someone you tried to pour out love to and they just wouldn't receive it, but you just kept loving them anyway? Doesn't God do that to us at times? He just keeps loving us. So he, he, he lays out this question, who shall separate us? And then he gives these, I think there's seven obstacles. Interestingly enough, these seven obstacles that we see down here in verse 35 is, they're all things that he's gone through except for one. I'll let you look and think of which one. And he did finally go through that one before he left this earth. So these are all things familiar to uh, the Apostle Paul. The first one is, let's go through these quickly, tribulation. The word tribulation here is not a minor thing. It's not when you stub your toe. It's not when you know, somebody just kind of hurts your feelings a little bit. Tribulation here is a serious heart-wrenching pain that you're going through. It's a, it's a real hardship. The word was used when it, they talked about pressing grapes in the Bible. And so it's, it's being pressed down. The word was also used when they would um, punish someone by just putting a huge boulder on the person and just killing them with that, with that way. So it means to be squeezed down, to be pressed down. 
Have you ever been at a time in life where you felt like the whole world's just squeezing down on you? The weight of the world's on your shoulders? That's what this means. But can that pain separate you from the love of Christ? No. The next word is distress. The word distress, it's like someone who finds themselves in a corner. Um, last night, we went to a, a birthday party, and a kid's birthday party, and they had a bunch of people there. It was more than expected. I should have stayed home. But um, so my family was just, the girls jumped in the pool to swim. Me, Jesse, and Andrew hung out by the, by the, tab- by the food table. And so I'm standing here, and, and Andrew's here, and Jesse's behind Andrew. And as more people move in, we just have to kind of maneuver backwards a little bit. And so I look up, and Jesse's gone. I don't see her anywhere. I'm like, where'd Jesse go? Well, she was actually still there, but Andrew had backed her into the corner with his body. And so I was like, Jesse, are you okay back there? But he had backed her way into the corner. She was pressed in, and there was no escape unless he let her out. And finally, he was nice enough to let his mama out. But I thought about that because that's what this word distress means. It means to be backed into a corner with no possibility of escape. And that's what happens to us. Or you can say it this way. Have you ever been in a situation in life where it feels like the walls are closing in on you? But when you're in that moment, can anyone separate you from the love of Christ? No. The next one, persecution. We know what that means, to be, to be hurt or hindered or put down for our faith. Famine means to be in need, particularly of food. Nakedness means to, means to be in need of clothing. Peril means to be uh, immediate danger that we face. And a sword here refers to being put to death. Which is why the next verse talks about, the next verse quotes Psalm 44, 22. And it talks about Christians being killed or, or slaughtered. And so in all these things, Paul is thinking back for at least six of them, things he's been through, and he will eventually, tradition tells us, die by the sword. And he's reminding these people, your pain is no small thing, but no matter what you go through, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. And there's something about that confidence, that assurance, of settling that in your heart now, so that when you go through stuff, you'll be able to make it through those difficult, difficult times. I would say this, if we, as we go to verse 37, when that, this verse talks about we're more than conquerors through him that loved us, because I know the people in this room, for us who know Jesus, not only should tribulation and distress not defeat us, But those things should make us flee to Christ or run to Him. Not only should those struggles not separate us from the love of Christ, because they cannot, they should, I don't like this word, scare us or move us from the worldly, the earthly, to look to Jesus. To go to Him as our shelter as our refuge, as our help. And as we go to Him, we can be more than conquerors. We can overcome these situations. Verse 38. Look at verse 38. Paul writes, For I am pretty sure... Is that what it says? (laughs) Maybe... No, for I am what? Persuaded. Sure convinced 
I am certain. I am certain. And he goes even deeper than he had gone previously. That neither death nor life. And he mentions these supernatural things, angels, principalities, powers. He mentions things that are time-related, things present, things to come. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, you've heard these things before, and this chapter begins with no condemnation. Christ took our condemnation, didn't he? So no one can condemn you for your sin. You still need to repent of your sin? Absolutely, we do. But ultimately, there's no condemnation. It begins, chapter 8 begins with no condemnation, and it ends with no separation. And that's not just to help us in eternity, it's to help us now. As we go through difficulties in life, we know we're not condemned. And no one, not even ourselves, can take us out of the hand of the Father. No one, not even ourselves, can separate us from the great salvation that He's given us. Would you bow?